<laughs> Not it. <Andrew. laughs> Welcome back to the Acom Mailroom. Today we're answering listener mail from the social media website Tumblr. We also have an email thrown in here, actually. Just a little <laughs> Easter egg for you. <laughs> we we ended up answering so much mail that this episode became too large, so we cut it in half. It began to bow under the weight of itself. <laughs> it did. So it broke itself in half. Did you enjoy the first half of our mailbag? <laughs> There's if you more. Did. So this is the second half. We cover a lot of ground, actually. We do. Little amuse bouche on mm-hmm. a multitude of subjects. Amuses bouche. <laughs> amuse bouches. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of cream puffs. That mm-hmm. is the alternate name. Title? Of the Beatles, of- yes. That was the <laughs> Beatles' name before they landed on the Beatles. <laughs> on the Beatles. We need to start referring to the Beatles more often as the rough, tough cream puffs. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> any any chance we get, really. Yeah. Maybe they'll rebrand. People are always like, you know, the Beatles, the Fabs. They call them the Fabs all the time. If, I know. If people can call them the Fabs. We can call them the Rough Tough Green Puffs. I agree. The RTCs, if you will. RTCPs. RTC Puffs. That sounds like <laughs> cereal. Anonymous asked, why was Paul getting a part-time job seen as a violation of his commitment to the band, but not John attending art school? (laughs) (laughs) Also, did John ever have a job of some kind or no? (laughs) Oh, this question is so (laughs) rich with... Shedding light on very cute and funny and idiosyncratic <laughs> aspects of the John Paul relationship. Uh, why was Paul getting a part-time drum seen as a violation of his commitment? Because John has rejection phobia and is in a jealous competition <laughs> specifically with Paul's father for reasons beknownst only to himself. John did at one point have some sort of manual labor job I forget the exact details. It's in Lewison's book uh, for like a summer. And it was sort of as a fuck you to Mimi because she was like, I don't, I don't know. She wanted him to buckle down <laughs> in his studies or stop coming home late at night or I don't know what. He was like, well, I'm going to get a job. And so he got some manual labor job where he was bust out and then like used a pickaxe to like, <laughs> oh, God, know, dig holes. Oh, geez. Or and she was like no nephew of mine is going to work with his hands oh like fuck you mimi (laughs) so he did as an act of rebellion and then she was like oh common job oh no (laughs) i'm just gonna picture john with a pickaxe i know (laughs) he's lucky he didn't chop off his own toe yeah seriously (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that was literally like a three-month gig. Three That's whole it. months? Really? Well, maybe. I'm thinking it was like a summer job. Yeah, he had to like get up early. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a bunch of things he doesn't like. 
manual labor getting up early yes all all laughing aside though being a professional musician is a very challenging job no nobody's saying he can't work hard i'm just saying physical yeah. labor by his yeah. own admission is not his no thing. no no i i understand but the the way that the ask is phrased i just wanted and i don't think a non meant it this way but yeah yeah but to the to get to the question though why was paul having a part-time job seen as a violation of his commitment but not john attending art school it's, it's a great question mm -hmm. i mean especially considering paul had to go hang out at the art school for rehearsals well art school is cool and coil winding is not cool but also john just he wants to have his cake and eat it too and he wants every scrap of Paul he can get. And he's in a pissing contest with Paul's father. Yeah, and it's only seen as a violation to John. I mean, I, right, no one I don't cares. think anybody cares. Yeah, no. Anonymous asked, John refused to be in a room alone with Paul? Well, yeah, that's what being together 24-7 with Yoko means. He's never alone with anyone else. We got a couple of asks of that same question and i huh. thought it was just kind of self-evident that yeah like if he's never yeah. without yoko that means he's never alone i mean by extension he's never alone with anybody without yoko but, but <laughs> paul, paul is a person <laughs> so. he is well and if he's his best friend and they're used to having a lot of alone time together and that's really important to both of them and they're married paul requires and deserves alone time with john to do their job but he doesn't mm -hmm. have it anymore so that's a it's a big thing that therefore has to be called out mm -hmm. but no there's no if you're looking for us to provide a source like a quote that says and from that point forward <laughs> i refuse to be alone in a room with paul then we don't have one no we don't have one no but it's it's implied yeah anonymous asked when did paul say it was difficult for him to say i love you to his kids Mm, i'll have to try to find that it's frustrating to me because that's one of the quotes that multiple times over my many years as a fan i've thought am i did i make that up and i've searched and searched and finally found it and i'm like yep i was right that is a true story but then didn't save it to anything and then a couple of years later I, I go through this cycle yeah you're like where did i put it i had it somewhere yeah, I think it might have been Linda who told the story. She had to remind Paul to tell, you have yeah. to tell your kids with words. And you so love like, them, but you have yes. to also say you love them. Mm -hmm. And so he like took that on and went solemnly room to room <laughs> and told them each that he loved them and ended up crying. And she was kind of like, okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I, I understand now. It's okay. Oh my God. <laughs> imagine be like what did i marry <laughs> i sure hope that jim said he loved paul uh, yeah i mean i hope that too but we have that story from angie jim's second wife paul's stepmother about yes. how jim literally never said i love you to her even when she would ask him to he would say no no i don't do that and not only that, but that he never said it to his wife, Mary, because because in that story, Jim says, I never said it to her, so I'm not likely to say it to you. God. Wow. 
something like that. And that the only time Mary said, I love you to Jim was the day she died on her deathbed. So that is just wild. That is fucking wild. It is wild. And maybe so maybe Paul comes by his um, I love you paralysis. Honestly, maybe it's a family trait. That's just crazy. I know life was harder back in Jim and Mary's time. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Lord knows what Mary in particular went through. Right. Like literally Lord knows because we don't even know. I mean, that's just going to be kind of lost to history. It's definitely lost. We just know that she ran away from home at 14. Yeah, I think we can fill in the blanks <clears throat> on that one. But yeah, <laughs> it's almost as if this inability of Paul's to say, I love you, has informed his entire career as a songwriter. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why he has spent his life writing love songs. Yes maybe yes one day someone will write a biography about this man (laughs) that takes evidence into account oh my god and this fact about himself it's very hard for him to overcome it he does his best and is able to sometimes i guess just say it normally like a normal person but most of the time he can't and it he's extremely guilty about it at least in relation to John. And he also wrote that song recently about not being able to say, I love you to Nancy. Yeah. 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 So it's still a struggle, but it's something he worked to change about himself. Yes. And I would just have to say that if this is something about Paul that has caused him pain in his adult life and still, you know, causes some problems for him. And like you say, it's something he worked to change about himself. That indicates to me that that it caused him some pain in his childhood as well that maybe he felt a lack you know he felt the lack of his parents verbalizing their love for him and maybe also felt that he should or that he had to or that he would experience bad consequences if he didn't also smush down his own softer love feelings maybe that was hard on a sense on a young sensitive artist yeah like if it had if the reverberations were so profound throughout his entire life you know that it had an effect it sounds like that was just the family situation he was born into right so if he's unusually sensitive that is going to be a problem totally yeah or or if he you know if one day as a four-year-old he says i love you daddy and his dad is like, mm-hmm. you pat, know, pat, 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 pat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's a good point. He could have, you know, he could have been saying it all the time when he was little and just never heard it back. If you if you never hear it back, you're going to stop saying it. Definitely. A and then B, you're yeah. also going to get the message that you shouldn't be saying it all the time. Right. You know, if saying "I love you." earns you silence then that would make you that would give you a very strong aversion to saying those words well that's true come to associate it with bad feelings or whatever oh geez yeah Yeah. and maybe this is 
part of why he leaned so hard on his line that, well, Northern men just didn't tell each other that they loved each other, because maybe that's how he justifies Jim's behavior as well. Maybe that's what, you know, he's always told himself about his dad. Well, you know, I, of course my dad loved me. He just, he was a Northern man and couldn't say those things. Um, yeah. To whatever degree he was comfortable or not comfortable or regretted that fact or steadfastly tried to ignore any pain that that you know you know maybe that's all tied together in his head and it's just it's just what he's landed on angie also told a story about jim and paul and it circulated on tumblr i'm just gonna read it it's from her book my long and winding road uh she says We didn't see much of Paul around the time of the final split, although Jim and Paul had a couple of phone conversations. Jim never imparted to me what Paul said on the subject, but Jim was always a bit tearful when he hung up the phone. He felt so deeply for his beloved son and what he was going through at the time. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm not saying, you know, we're not saying that Jim didn't feel love and tender things for his family. He just couldn't express it well and and showed it in different ways just not you know with those of course particular words i love you yeah and same with paul i mean he's just weird about saying i love you yep so this question was actually sent as an email from a newish listener um who writes dear phoebe and talia just writing in to say how much i enjoyed your last episode of akon the other day i have a couple of thoughts on the question of hero worship it seems fair to mention that passage from the barry miles book in which paul recounts his lsd inspired vision of his songwriting partner as quote a king the absolute emperor of eternity this seems a fairly striking thing for Paul to say, even allowing for the tragic circumstances of John's death and the emotional repercussions thereof. In my opinion, it suggests that Paul did idolize John on some level, and I think it speaks well of Paul that he can be honest enough to admit this, especially after being so viciously attacked in the 70s. I also think it does nothing to detract from your wider point that the admiration was mutual. Anyway, thank you so much. I shall can continue to listen. All the best protected (laughs) all right well thank you very much for that email i really appreciate that i'm glad you're listening and i'm glad you're enjoying it um i do agree that that is an interesting quote i don't know that it has anything to do with leadership per se i have a different take on the emperor of eternity and in case anyone is like oh come on phoebe emperor is unambiguous i mean okay but john also used the word god in reference to paul for anyone who wants to push back and go like okay that's true but context then i agree and that's all i'm arguing in this case as well not that paul meant something other than emperor i think he chose the word that he that he meant um Mm -hmm. just that but I, I think it's important to read it in context. Paul doesn't say in this story or even imply, you know, I was suddenly filled with slavish devotion to him mm-hmm. because of my worship. To the contrary, this is 
a hallucination that chased Paul out of the room. He went upstairs to basically hide from John because he said it felt like John was controlling the whole house. The quote is, I could feel every inch of the house and John seemed like some sort of emperor in control of it all. Paul is telling the story of this intense acid trip, right? He's not reminiscing and saying, he was always my emperor. And here's a story about the moment that I realized it. He's recounting an acid trip and some of the weird shit that he imagined. I'm just going to tell a personal story here. Once when I was 15 years old, I was on this very intense acid trip. It wasn't the first time I had done acid, but it was like the first time I had had acid that was super heavy. Anyway, I was with my BFF. And this boy that we knew from school, so it's the three of us tripping, and the girlfriend of another buddy of mine. So this woman, she was like 19. I was 15 at the time. She did not do drugs, and she just decided that she was going to be our, you know, trip mama. She was like <laughs> the um, the sober person who was watching over all these kids who were tripping balls, right? Yeah. She was driving us around and taking us to parks and, you know doing that type wow of that's yeah. quite a thing to volunteer for it is actually and it, <laughs> it might have been because we were real stupid and we did it without a plan and she was like what are you doing get in the car let me take you someplace safe so this sober 19 year old woman is um taking us around and talking to us and just sort of making sure that we don't do anything unsafe and that we have a pleasant trip and at some point <laughs> at some point at like the peak of the trip or whatever i i look at her and i tell her everything in my life comes back to you <laughs> absolutely most ludicrous thing to say yes i don't have a crush on this woman i don't even remember her last name <laughs> i never saw her after she broke up with my friend um but at that moment, I decided that she was the center of my entire life. And <laughs> everything in my life came back to her. This person I barely knew. It was the drugs talking. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I just want to read Paul's quote here. He says, there was something disturbing about the trip. And he had to keep walking out into the garden. He said, I've got to do it for my own well-being. Yeah. And he said, in the meantime, John had been sitting around very enigmatically. And I had a big vision of him as a king, the absolute emperor of eternity. So to me, the enigmatic part is so important because mm -hmm. Paul's describing a situation where he feels out of control. And John looks calm and in control. And I cannot tell you how powerful that makes a person when you're on heavy fucking drugs. That makes John look wise, powerful, and it's also a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. After the fun part, Paul's like, okay, this isn't really fun anymore. You're creeping me out. And he goes out of his way to say, look, John wasn't doing anything. You know, he, he was just chilling. But it was like John's 50,000th trip. The first part of the trip, it was lovely. We were very close. We were staring into mm -hmm. each other's eyes. We were connecting. We were bonding. But then the mm -hmm. second part of the trip is now he's an emperor in control of the house while I feel out of control. 
that's the part he doesn't like that's the part where he goes and hides in the upstairs john isn't as far as we know like he he's an enigmatic emperor not like a benevolent loving emperor john is intimidating in this role paul doesn't say and i fell to one knee and groveled on in the carpet exactly i kissed his ring right right. anything for you my love i I see how people make the connection because they were like well he was just talking about how much he loved him and now he's the emperor of eternity so clearly paul's saying this is his undying love and devotion or whatever i understand how you could make the leap in reading the text but i think he's talking about two very very different emotions and two very different things i gave you an example from my personal life that is not a belief that i held deep down or that i held after i was sober after the trip wore off you know but at that time that person was the emperor of eternity for me yeah but does that really mean that everything in my life comes back to this woman whose name i don't remember no yeah well again i think that's that's a pretty fair like your hallucinogenic perception of her meant something it meant that she was calm in this situation and was taking care of you it doesn't mean that she actually was the most important person in your life right so the emperor hallucination is open to interpretation i think it's tempting to apply whatever your interpretation of that is to their whole relationship overall like it's revealing some inner truth mm-hmm. but it might have just been a situational thing is what i'm saying because for example i don't think that paul was paranoid and scared of john all the time either no i don't think that he thought john was secretly controlling his life no. you know but i just think that like in that moment because of the heavy drugs that he was on and because he felt out of control and because john was sitting there enigmatically and seemed mm-hmm. to know everything mm-hmm. that it created a sort of imbalance mm-hmm. i feel like the situation of this first trip i mean it, it seems to me sort of like the build-up to it almost guaranteed a bad result not that they, not that they experienced a bad result i'm just saying like the whole like the pressure building up to it and the like the building and building anticipation and one party really really wants to do it and has done it many times and the other is more hesitant well i would love to hear john's i know john's take of it because even paul says in his quote john was quite amazed that it had struck me in that way Hmm. he's referring to what he was like okay bye john i'm going to bed and he says go to bed you won't sleep it's hard to tell just from that brief sentence or whatever but it sounds like john was kind of taken off guard he's sitting there enigmatically probably like why are you afraid of me what the fuck yeah why are you why why are you creeping away like yeah i just am i hideous like what's do i look like medusa right now yeah we just threw our psyches in a pot and melted them down together why are you exactly what's, like I... what's wrong with that why does <laughs> or like if I... they were if they were really like vibing and connecting he must have been like what the hell i thought it was all going good right 
and now you are recoiling in disgust and terror what the fuck right what did you see yeah so i mean anyway that's how i take it i take it he's he's recoiling it's something that he doesn't like i take it almost the opposite like it just doesn't it doesn't sound like affection or admiration to me Mm -hmm. i will say that it sounds like john is very powerful in this scenario sure but i don't think that's the same thing as idolizing right but again, that's my interpretation. That's my two cents for whatever it's worth. On the subject of John referring to Paul as a god, you're talking about him saying that Paul looked like a god in the Let It Be footage and <laughs> the fact on Plastic Ono Band, John says that I've seen religion from Jesus to Paul. Yeah, so he's he's saying that, yeah, the, the editing of Let It Be made <laughs> Paul look like a god which like that is a john lennon only interpretation i've never heard anybody (laughs) ever ever say that let it be makes paul mccartney look like a god that's a (laughs) wild interpretation um perhaps you're projecting a little and then also yeah comparing paul to a religion is again i think you're projecting a little bit i mean i don't I, i don't know that Paul was worshipped more than John was, especially in 1970. For sure. I've been through it all. I've seen religion from Jesus to Paul. I don't know if John is saying that he personally worshipped both Jesus and then Paul. Right, yeah. And and just as a quick side note, to be clear, we are aware that the line is also a play on words about the like ancient religious debate between the differences between christianity as preached by christ and christianity as applied by the apostle paul like that's a whole ancient you know religious studies debate um so it's a clever play on words but i have absolutely no doubt that john's purpose with that line is to comment on his own paul yes yes he's He's seen Jesus freaks and Beatle maniacs. He's <laughs> not saying he was witness to ancient schisms in Christianity. <laughs> no. This is his disillusionment song, not his quantum leap song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the Beatles and Paul are the main focus of his disillusionment. Yeah. So Paul is a religion. Yeah. There are different ways to interpret that. You could be like, but John was jealous of Paul's worship and he wanted to be worshipped more than Paul. Maybe that's so. But again, it means something. What does it mean? I don't know. But there he is comparing Paul to a god. So yeah, like I'm saying, the, the emperor isn't meaningless. That's It's quite a thing to say. So it does mean something. I just, I just don't personally subscribe to the interpretation that it means... Paul idolized John. I don't think that that's what he's saying. <laughs> and besides, what's a king to a god? <laughs> what's a god to a non-believer? Well, right. And then we're back to the song God and the Plastic Ono Band, which is like, how do you take power away from a god? Mm-hmm. You don't believe in him anymore. So yeah, you see through him. That's literally what's happening on that album and that song. I don't believe in Beatles. So there we go. Yeah. Anonymous asked, 
Hello there. I'm a new listener and I'm absolutely loving your podcast. I wanted to ask you guys a question. I've heard it mentioned a few times in different episodes that once John hit Yoko and caused her to miscarry. I've tried to search for the source of this account and I cannot find anything on it. All I found was that Yoko said in an interview that John never hit her and that her early miscarriages were most likely due to stress, drug taking, or just because they sometimes happen. Just to be clear, I absolutely am aware of John's history of abuse and I do not deny it exists. I would just like to know the source for this specific incident as it seems extraordinarily difficult to find and I've only heard it from your podcast. Hi, Anon. Thank you for the kind comments. I'm glad you're loving the podcast. Yes, I mentioned this incident in Pizza and Fairy Tales when Daphne and I were discussing the potential divorce between John and Yoko. Um, I mentioned it as potential, I don't know, ammo, I guess, that Yoko would have against John were she to testify against him. And then I mentioned it in the episode about the John and Yoko TV movie <laughs> called John and Yoko Love Story, which is a, a biopic, a made-for-TV biopic, where the Yoko character spends a, an enormous amount of the movie in various hospital beds having miscarriages. So it certainly is an issue that comes up a lot in the movie, but of course there's never any hint of violence. We have two on-the-record sources for John hitting Yoko, two longtime assistants slash, in Dan Richter's case, butler to the <laughs> Lenonos. Um, Arlene Rexon is on the record telling Albert Goldman that Yoko told her that John hit her badly enough to cause a miscarriage. Dan Richter told Goldman he saw the aftermath meaning Yoko's injuries, I assume, but he did not witness the incident itself. Now, Albert Goldman's book is rightfully considered wildly biased against and misleading about mm -hmm. John, at least as far as his own editorializing goes. But there's no reason to think he misreported direct quotes from his interviewees, especially as many of the interviews were taped. Right. The tape with Rexon's account is apparently in Goldman's archive, which is housed at the New York Public Library and is available to the public for in-person viewing and or reading. Also, I just want to repeat what I've said in the TV movie episode, which is that if Yoko wants to deny that she ever said this, I think that's fine. Of course. Um, I think that's her prerogative, honestly. Finally, <clears throat> we're going to play a clip from John and Yoko's St. Regis interview. This particular exchange is hardly ever reported, interestingly. Mm. Uh, when it, people often insist John must be talking about Cynthia here. Why would he call his ex-wife his wife in front of his current wife? I encourage everyone to listen to how John and Yoko are talking to each other and ask yourself honestly if you would still think this is about Cynthia if the topic were literally anything other than hitting. Because all my life had been like that. And that's when I really got shocked, you know. Apart from occasionally hitting my dear wife, <laughs> the early days when I was a bit... I mean, the early days. The early days when I was a bit, you know, crazy. But apart from that, I've been... Because I can't say in front of you I'm non-violent. 
Okay. Anonymous asked, hi, sorry, but I am one of those Anons who sends a lot of questions <laughs> because you seem to know your stuff. In the cover with the Beatles, Paul's head is a lot smaller than John and George, so it seems like he is marketed to be a less important member. Was that a deliberate move by Brian slash John? What was behind that decision? I know what you what you're talking about, Anon, and it's always bothered me just from a graphic design standpoint. <laughs> I'm a frustrated graphic designer, and it's horrible design. Maybe there's something behind it, but I kind of doubt it. I think they just probably just put John and George's face on there, and they're like, "Oh, we have to make Ringo's and Paul's a lot smaller in order to fit." Should we fix that? No, we'll just make them smaller, and instead of a continuous line, we'll put one of them below it it's just yeah, a bad yeah. choice it's yeah bad. i think so it's very ugly i've always hated it i have very strong opinions i think it's a nice photo they look good oh I now hate it as, i hate it as an album cover now that i'm looking at it it's i i'd never noticed before but it's kind of bothering me now too because they seem out of proportion uh-huh yes mm. they do yes it's a good concept <laughs> i don't think it was meant to be a slight to paul basically um we just think it was kind of a not great design yeah this is a very old one i'm so sorry that it's taken a long time to answer this one anonymous asked do you know what paul's relationship with mark lewison is currently like or yoko's relationship with mark i just reread mark's horrible comments about john's death how mark basically said paul was jealous of the attention john was receiving there's a lot of duality in Paul and duality to death as well. And he's allowed to simultaneously be crushed and worried about what will happen to the legacy of their band. All I saw from Paul was grief, anger, and anxiety, the unknown in front of him. So a sort of a twofold question. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, we don't know what the relationship is like not really no it doesn't seem like paul is <laughs> crazy about lewison or was very thrilled with tune in um that's based on comments from lewison himself like yeah. when he mentioned that he thought early days was directed at him i don't i don't know i don't think he really seems to care about the feedback of any of the beatles because we know he didn't have a good relationship with george right the real answer is we just don't know we just don't know we don't because we don't know paul and as far as like yoko's relationship with mark yoko doesn't like anyone who's I, trying well to... i i i seem to recall that the, she didn't like him in the beginning around anthology era or whatever um mm. i don't think anybody liked him in that era but the he might have cozied up to her since then because he it's has he, especially like prior to get back in the last like five years or whatever he's really been coming out hard like pro yoko yeah that's true and, and pro john and yoko to the point of like saying 1969 was john lennon's best year ever sometimes he is more effusive about john lennon solo or john and yoko solo in 69 than he is about the beatles and then for the second part of your ask regarding lewison's comments about paul being jealous of the praise and attention that john received immediately after his murder um to be clear that is a conclusion 
that Lewis and Drew, just from watching the tape of Paul saying it's drag, which anybody can do, he said it was his observation as a person who watches Paul, um, which obviously all of us do as well. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're all Paul watchers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't think anybody needs Mark Lewison to tell them what Paul was feeling on the day of John's murder. We can all watch the tape for ourselves or listen to Paul's own comments about his own very personal experience and what it meant to him. And that's all I have to say about that. A listener asked, hello, thanks for the pod. Recently, I became interested in the Beatles Hamburg period and the Klaus-Astrid Stewart connection to the band as a whole, to Paul versus John in particular. I get the feeling that none of them liked Paul. Their favorites were John and George. I wanted to ask, why do you think that is? Paul was shy or irritated back then? Was he not cool or artistic enough for them? And also related to that, are you going to focus on the early periods of the band slash John and Paul? I think that we are having too much of the breakup and early <laughs> 70s because of the release of Get Back, I really want to hear your account on other periods. Thanks a lot. Okay. Um, thank you. For, thank you for listening. And thank you for your interest. Um, I would love to focus on early periods. That would be a, a nice detour from the late 70s. We have been dealing a lot with that. What with Get Back and other things. Um, so to the first part of your question, what's up with Klaus Astrid Stewart and John and Paul and George <laughs> and all the Beatles and the Hamburg people? Um, I get the feeling that none of them liked Paul. Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Yeah. Um, yeah, at least to a degree or at least at first or, or whatever. To be perfectly candid. The reason I think that is, is because um, Klaus and Astrid, but definitely Astrid, <laughs> had an immediate connection with Stuart and liked yeah. Stuart. And Stuart yeah. was their favorite. So mm -hmm. if Stuart is your favorite, it only makes sense that you're not going to like Paul because Stuart hates Paul. <laughs> I think it's probably about that deep. Um mm -hmm. Which isn't to say that Paul <laughs> has has no unlikable traits. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or that he handled it great. But then again, who would handle that well? Like, well, exactly. Who a twenty year old away from home, on way too many drugs and not enough food and sleep, staying up all hours. His best friend and partner seems to be drifting away, and then people in the new clique don't like him very much. Of course, he's going to be well, not a ray of sunshine about that. Yeah, and it's not just that they don't like him so much, but it's that they're fawning over the guy that he hates. So, mm. And Paul cannot nope out of this situation. He has to stay. No, he's living with them in a tiny yeah. box. <laughs> and yeah. And he's working with them all night long. And these are really their own. And the other thing is that they really need friends. So it's it's really mm -hmm. important that they have this friend group. 
And also they're college students. They appreciate yeah. the skills. They turn them onto a bunch of different stuff. They give them a fucking makeover for Christ's sake. Take professional quality pictures mm-hmm. of them. Like they're yeah. really valuable friend group to the Beatles. So Paul has to get along with them, yeah. which I think he tries his best to do. But yes, of course, it's a blow to his ego that they're they're not really impressed like paul's very smart and extremely gifted and they don't care at all i'm sure paul's like you've got to be fucking kidding me this guy can't even play his fucking instrument oh and he's getting this really cool art girl i'm sleeping with a stripper no shade to strippers (laughs) no but yeah i mean paul himself said you know yeah the fact that astrid was so immediately wanted Stu and none of us yeah i was jealous because she was very desirable she's smart and talented and, and cute forgot, and, paul's ni- and paul's 19 yeah that too paul is so incredibly competitive and once again good for paul admitting to his frailties with humor and self-deprecation there's that quote from astrid where she says Paul is my least favorite because I felt like I couldn't be close to him because he always was polite, yep. diplomatic, which I always, I always wonder, I'm like, is she saying something else? Is this a language barrier thing maybe going on? Not that she's not fluent in English, but are there connotations that aren't really landing for me? Cause it, I thought, no, I think she's just saying he is was mannerly. Just, yeah and he was cold or you know he was pleasant attached yeah like i said earlier like i think paul just wants peace that's why he's being polite Mm -hmm. he's trying to not make it a thing and he wants to get along but obviously there's no love connection there too and how warm is he going to be to people who don't like him right right right. it's just going to be a compounding problem i think paul and astrid eventually did become friends Mm mm-hmm or at least become very friendly, like warm, friendly. Yeah, Klaus too, I think, except for how do you sleep? I'm not an expert. I'm from the outside. But my impression is that things got better with Klaus, but never great. Yeah. But with Astrid, it seems really warm. Mm. She never really has anything bad to say about Paul. I mean, she has nothing nasty to say about Paul. Oh, you that's know? true. And she sticks up for him. You know, in the mm-hmm. later years as an adult. Yeah. And then the other question was Paul not cool slash artistic. Now, the listener put this in air quotes, cool slash artistic. So he or she did not mean anything by it. Um, but just for the record, I definitely don't think that that's the issue. Paul's extremely artistic. He's a wildly <laughs> successful artist. We know he's like one of the most artistic people on the planet. So it's not about being artistic it might be about being artsy (laughs) the thing that always bothers me about Stu and paul is perpetually fucking annoying to me that the rivalry is presented as one-sided on paul's part Mm -hmm. which it definitely isn't like we have as much evidence that Stu was a little bitch as we do vice versa i mean we literally Mm -hmm. have letters from Stu writing shitty things about paul and stewart telling astrid to throw dot out of the house and shit like that so Mm -hmm. we know that this was a two-way thing and i think 
Paul has taken the burden because he lived, because he was successful. Of course. And he got everything that Stuart is deprived of. Yes, exactly. Because of his tragic end. So while I understand it, I don't think we need to perpetuate it. It's okay to say that they had a mutual rivalry, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. And that they were like mutually bitchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, these next five questions pertain to a mistake in many ways. Our recent five-part series about the final six months of the Beatles. Which you should okay. check out. I haven't already. Absolutely, you should. Okay. Anonymous asked, Ringo could have been brought up specifically in that one did you miss the Beatles contributions question because drumming is the skill Paul is least adept at out of drums, bass, and guitar. Yeah, that's true. No, I I think that's a good point. Maybe so. A listener asked, I seem to recall Paul saying that he was told he had to be there physically in court, so I don't know if this was his decision or not. Well, that is a good point, Anon, and and would make sense since he's the one who's bringing the suit. It would make sense if that was the case. Yeah, so I believe that's probably true. Sure. Anonymous asked, it seems like Paul dealt with a lot of John's insecurities that involved him, but also so many other issues. I feel like Paul had to separate from John with his increasingly impulsive and provocative act. Two virgins was risky for that time, and John's heroin use and grandiosity, i.e. I'm Jesus, left Paul no choice but to leave. John treated Paul so poorly at the divorce meeting, and I think Paul's survival instincts kicked in. Yeah, I think that's a nice um, analysis there. Yeah, I agree. I, I co-sign that one. Yeah, if 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 it wasn't a cause for Paul wanting to leave, it certainly, I'm sure, was, you know, on the con list. If he's, we talked, we talked several times about Paul making, you know, a, a cost benefit analysis, right. and I think we all know what, which column, those actions of John's would go into. So maybe it made the decision a little easier. Yeah, and I do think he was willing to put up with quite a bit mm-hmm. when things were good, when it was worth it, you know, like when he was getting love and respect back, he was willing mm-hmm. to go out on a limb for John. I mean, he did it for years and years and years and respected yeah. John, you know, like respected him as a person and an artist, so was mm-hmm. willing to do it. Yeah. There's a great quote from Paul about the two virgins cover. And Paul says, well, you know, the whole posing naked on an album cover thing. I don't know. I don't know about that. It's not really cool in my eyes, but I love John. I respect John. I'm just going to assume he's ahead of me on this. Yep. And I think that is so, like, that's love, man. I know. I was about to say that is so like. There's so much respect and trust in that statement. Trust, yeah, yeah. Yep. I'm gonna assume he's ahead of me on this one. And also, just like humility, like he's so willing to be humble and to give John the benefit of the doubt, and he really doesn't need to do that. 
No. But that is that is a reaction that we've got from a lot of our listeners. Yeah. When you stack all these things up, you really start to get a clear picture of, you know, a very dysfunctional and lopsided relationship that this has become. Post-India, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, Paul assessed and made the right choice. You know, I, I definitely don't think he wants to be seen as a deserter, but I think he did the right thing. A listener asked, hi, love the podcast. One thought I had while listening to your discussion of the divorce meeting, John's, this is really exciting, or whatever he said, comes across to me as pure nerves rather than callousness or gloating. I can think of a couple incidents in my own life where I've been in an argument slash intense discussion with someone and broken off to allude to the ridiculousness slash tenseness of the situation. I think the exhilaration of finally saying something he'd been building up to must have been quite intense and led to that comment. Basically, I don't think it was a, yeah, what do you think of that? So much as a, wow, do you hear what I just came out with? Hey, listener. Thank you. Glad you love the podcast. Here's Paul's quote again from the lyrics. Uh, so it's the most recent quote we have from him on the subject. Paul said, In the ensuing moments, John was giggling and saying how this felt really thrilling. Like telling someone you're going to divorce them and then laughing. At the time, obviously, that was wildly hurtful. Talk about a knockout blow. You're lying on the canvas and he's giggling and telling you how good it feels to have just knocked you out. Yeah, so Paul thinks it was cruel, and we think it was cruel, and I understand what you're saying, which is that maybe it was nervous mm -hmm. laughter, mm -hmm. but again, you know, John publicly admitted that he could see that Paul was upset by his words and behavior, but he didn't show any remorse or apologize at the time or at any point thereafter. In fact, later in the 70s, he told John Green, his tarot card reader, if you believe him, that he was pleased and, quote, touched by Paul's reaction, which, again, definitely suggests John wanted to hurt or upset Paul for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And we theorize that his motivation wasn't callous indifference or sadism or pure selfishness as the nervous excitement theory suggests but rather just because he wanted a reaction from paul that he felt he could not get any other way so if he was saying something that he knew was going to hurt paul's feelings and he couldn't control his laughter once he saw that paul was upset just seems like the only rational thing to do after that is to apologize and say i'm not laughing at you paul right or you know i'm not I'm, I'm not saying this to hurt you or or even i mean at the outside even just later that day to say uh can we talk one-on-one -on -one? like let's 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 not leave it like that the point of leaving it like that is to to rub it in yeah as much as possible and i understand that 
getting unceremoniously dumped by your spouse in a room full of people is outside the realm of most people's uh, firsthand experiences. That's fortunate. Um, to say nothing of then being laughed at and told your spouse was planning to lie to you for financial gain right afterwards. So, so it is, it is a hard situation to imagine. It really is because it's so extreme, but it's that very extreme nature that makes us think that John was deliberately trying to hurt and be cruel and to damage Paul. Another problem with it is that it's, it's presented in Beetle books as if it's something normal, like it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that Paul was hurt, but that's Paul's problem. I mean, that's how it's presented in Beatles books. So mm -hmm. I understand if that's how it looks on the surface. We don't accept that. We think it's a pivotal event that caused irreparable damage to John and Paul, not just their professional relationship, but their personal one as well. Historically, it's been either glossed over or presented as so inevitable as to be anticlimactic mm -hmm. or as an empowering courageous and victorious moment for john free of regret or complex motives or even mixed feelings on his part mm -hmm. we say in our series that john's behavior in the divorce meeting was actually an emotionally driven choice with massive repercussions it hurt Paul probably more than John intended, and it set in motion Paul's actual emotional and logistical withdrawal from John and the Beatles, which ultimately caused John a lot of pain. Yeah, our series explores in part why John did what he did and the myriad of ways he tried to walk it back after the fact. And we argue that John wasn't callously indifferent to paul or simply being a selfish asshole right right it's because he's hurt and so he wants to lash out that's what john does it definitely depends on how you see that whether that whether that's actually better than just being a self-centered uh, you know out for yourself callous person and maybe maybe paul presents this happening because he wants someone he wants someone to disagree with him saying that it was just gratuitous cruelty on John's part. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like maybe he's maybe he's putting that out there hoping that someone will contradict him and be like, "Well, but you could see it this other way, Paul." Um but any which way, no matter what reason that that john is doing it the point is that it's awful for paul it's a terrible situation there's no ambiguity about that yeah it's hurtful it's humiliating it's devastating it's foundation shaking it's life choice questioning making <laughs> yes and i mean very 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 importantly it is the moment from which paul never comes back so that's a big mm. deal and that well that tells you right there so paul does not give <laughs> paul does not give up easily no ma'am he isn't he is not one to be easily discouraged by obstacles well not at all and he's put up with a ton <laughs> from john over the years yeah and he doesn't want to break up but this is the thing he can't come back from yep 
just because the story is not told traditionally in Beatles books with any sympathy towards Paul doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve sympathy. So we hope you will continue to listen and enjoy Anonymous. Thank you for the note. That was that was actually fun to parse that out. I enjoy doing that with <laughs> you, Phoebe. I enjoy doing all kinds of things with you. Daphne. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you on can air. What that means dirty minds. <laughs> Anonymous asked, "Was Yoko in the session that John Ringo and George?" were that was designed to entrap paul i don't know that the session ever happened Happened. they they just put it on the docket yeah they tried to and paul didn't show up because john says and then paul didn't show up and he'll he'll never come and now i won't ever go right right now i would never do it either Mm -hmm. okay okay john I think John it's unlikely Yo- that they were even there in the first place. Yeah, but if they had been, I assume Yoko would have gone. Since it was still John and Yoko times. Yeah. Alright, Anonymous asked, I appreciate you guys frequently addressing the feminization of Paul, and I hope you dedicate a future up to this episode. Because, quite frankly, I'm so over the young crowd constantly referring to Paul as a mean girl a pretty little liar and a diva slash queen as if what they're doing is cute and not every bit as toxic and homophobic as what the jean jackets have done this is becoming a serious issue in fandom it would be amazing if you guys addressed a lot of new toxic beetle tropes in general because there are basically no voices in fandom combating them okay well first of all thank you very much anon we appreciate you. Yes, thank you. I think we should be clear about what the feminization of Paul means. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, I do want to draw a distinction between what's playful and fun. You know, especially nowadays, it's becoming a lot more commonplace to refer to men and boys as girl mm-hmm. or lady or woman or whatever i don't have any problem with that i've been <laughs> calling women dude for a long time all my <laughs> life so i you know i definitely don't have a problem like switching genders up on stuff i like that people are doing are using female pronouns for men now just to show that like it's not an insult yes and we've used, you know, I think we've referred to the other Beatles as mean girls and, you know, we've called them all bitches and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we totally, we do that as well. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, at least it doesn't bother me. Nope. Me neither. Yeah. When I, as a pseudo old person. Uh... <laughs> You're old too, bitch. <laughs> I know. I know. As an old person, when I first started noticing this trend on the socials <laughs> at first i was like what is is i don't understand this seems <laughs> why are they what <laughs> is this supposed to be derogatory why, so... why is everybody a baby girl exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like is that is that a, is that a reference to a show that i don't watch <laughs> don't understand and now i get it i'm like oh it's just because why not 
got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in as much as it is applied across the board and with no <laughs> implied insult, yeah, I think it's absolutely fine and fun and people should feel free. Yes. And I also get that it's funny to upset old people yes. by calling everything gay. Like, I, yes. that is funny. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you're just like indiscriminately calling everything gay then <laughs> how can i have a problem with that i've seen like simon and garfunkel gay memes and stuff and people getting legit upset about them like <laughs> take it very very seriously what they're not homosexuals like people are obviously just goofing like relax yes. it's just so funny that you're getting upset about it. so we we do get it as as far as I guess it's possible for old people to get it. We do. We get we get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However <laughs> <laughs> there is a long tradition in Beatles history and books of marginalizing Paul by attributing feminine quote unquote characteristics to him and talking about him in a feminized sort of way deliberately to diminish him to distinguish him from the other Beatles, yes and diminish him simultaneously well and to characterize him as all those things he is irrational Pet he's emotional petty. he's petty shallow vain yeah he's bossy he, he he's a nag yeah he's sappy he can't compartmentalize yeah paul's jealous he's clingy sentimental soft and he's literally been called the girl of the group and this is because in the traditionally misogynistic homophobic patriarchal universe being like a woman is bad that's why this so-called feminization is bad it would also be bad if all these stereotypes were applied to a woman and to be clear, these stereotypes are primarily used to diminish women. It just so happens that they can also conveniently be weaponized against men who don't fit into the traditionally rigid box of masculinity, which Paul often did not. Now, that doesn't make Paul a murderer or a hero. And it doesn't mean that he cannot also simultaneously benefit from his massive privilege as a straight or straight presenting white cis man. He can, did, and does. We are never trying to suggest that he doesn't have plenty of privilege or that he doesn't deserve criticism for his own history of sexist attitudes. Right. But that is separate from the issue that we're drawing attention to which is you know paul being coded as female and all the sexist bullshit that entails because it carries with it the presumption that paul's goals ambitions and personal interests are never as big a priority as john's and should not be mm -hmm. And that Paul's most important role is to support John, be John's organizer, editor, and cheerleader, to help John maintain dominance and save face, 
and that Paul should always put those interests above his own. Yeah, and mean and meanwhile, John has no obligation to provide the same for Paul. In any and all cases where John does magnanimously deign to give any of that to Paul, it's you know, it's framed as wow, what a wonderful, generous, yeah, excellent leader John is. Whereas when Paul does it, it's just like, well, that's just what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And anytime he doesn't remain secondary or subservient or, you know, junior, then it's it's viewed as mutiny or some sort of uh, usurping of power. And then because all of that is built on gender stereotypes, that means it's also just a mental shortcut for people meaning it's mm. like lazy and inaccurate <laughs> mm-hmm. and so these superficial tropes absolutely pollute the Beatles story and get in the way of a better understanding of Paul as an artist as well as the interpersonal dynamics and relationships within the band yeah yeah it, it diminishes Paul's autonomy and it decenters him from the story of his own life. And if he's one of the most important cultural figures of the 20th century, which he is, then that's a problem. Yeah. We need to be mindful of how things are changing and how words are changing. But also, younger people, you also have to be mindful of things that have actually been done to people on Earth, you know, very recently i know if you're young Mm -hmm. it feels like a long time ago but it's not to people who actually lived through it right so just try to be a little more sensitive to older people and what they've been through and older people try to be more understanding of younger people yeah okay anonymous asked i thought a bit about that question someone had about the difference between the paul john relationship in 66 Versus 69. In 66, John kept talking about how much he missed the Beatles, how much he needed them, etc. But in 69, he had the opposite reaction. This time, his reaction to the issues between him and Paul was not to tell him that he needed him. He did the complete opposite, found someone else and kept repeating over and over how he finally found someone who loved him, acting like he didn't need the band anymore. I don't know. Maybe this is obvious already. Maybe in 69, John expected Paul to be the one that time to admit how much he loves and needs the band, like John did when he returned from Spain. Or did Paul also admit that he missed John while making the family way? But Paul chose Linda instead, or that's what it felt like to John, maybe. And while John was waiting for Paul to reach out, Paul thought John didn't love slash need him anymore. Maybe he thought, this time we can't fix it because he'd rather have Yoko than me this time. So they both just never reached out because they were hurt or confused about the other one not reaching out. But again, that's probably obvious. I'm not sure. Okay, so two things. Um, Thank you for that note, Anon. It sounds like maybe you're new. Um, because in you which keep... case welcome yeah exactly exactly i didn't just say that because you you said twice maybe this is obvious i'm not sure <laughs> so sounds like you, that you're that you're new to the fandom and you're just sort of piecing things together um which is great welcome 
I think you mean in 68 rather than in 69, but that's just a um, just a note for clarification. Not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I think it's something like this. <laughs> Is that what you would say? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of them. John thinks he loves Paul more than Paul loves him, and Paul thinks he loves John more than John loves him. Yeah, this is a this is a sort of ongoing problem. <laughs> Teeter totter carousel of stupidity. I really do like this point. Um, John expecting Paul to be the one this time to admit how much he missed and loved him um, while they were apart while John was oh. in Spain. Um, one of the cutest things about the family way story is when george martin talks about how he had to go to paul's house and like stand over him while he wrote the little theme to the family way what i think is adorable about this is that he walked in and john was there and john and paul were just having their fun john and paul time together even though paul knew he had this deadline he was like john's back from spain that was more important to paul than fulfilling his contractual <laughs> obligation and then he's like oh okay all right fine i'll sit down how about this writes an ivor novella winning award <laughs> so anyway my point with that was just to say i think paul was also very glad to see john again this time his reaction to the issues so does she mean like um he or she mean like by this time when john came back from india I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, that's that's a good point, though. So if John wanted to come back to London from India and Paul to come rushing over and be like, hey, how have you been? Do you want to write some songs or whatever? Mm -hmm. I always wonder, like, where the fuck is Paul at this time? When John is having, you know, LSD character breakdowns at Derek taylor's house and yoko's yes. hanging around and pete shotten's there all the time why are Derek and pete shotten taking care of john at this time where is paul this is what i'm driving at maybe he's <laughs> so anxious at this time for whatever reason just because he has anxiety and because he hasn't found a good way to deal with it or whatever i mean that was the point of going right. to india right sure no, i mean you know for spiritual enlightenment and stuff like that too but also i think it's probably for john and paul to combat their anxiety yeah yeah stress yes meditation is mm -hmm. you know yeah so maybe he couldn't get it under control and it got to the point where he was just like nothing is ever okay and he mm. can't ever relax and he can't ever be happy and he doesn't know what's wrong with him yeah that's what it feels like to me yeah i can see that nobody has the language for that at that time nope N nobody knows what that is nobody can diagnose him with anything and the way that it might have expressed itself or what have you mm -hmm. is that he might have just been like i can't deal with you right now John. <laughs> i can't deal with whatever you're dealing with that is of course yeah way above my pay grade yeah i i definitely see that and paul i think like a lot of people who want to be 
positive, who want to be fixers, who want to facilitate other people and smooth the waters and um, all that stuff. Sometimes they will repress their own issues by concentrating on someone else's issues. Yeah. I think that's pretty common. Um, but obviously that can't last forever. And even though Paul is good at that, he needs a caretaker. Maybe he's run into that wall at this point. And the rest of that year. Because he's yeah. pretty much fallen apart the whole year. Yeah, he's a he's a mess. <sighs> well, and you can see it in Get Back when he when he bounces into the studio and he's like he pretends to punch that guy in the stomach and he literally winks at someone in the corner and he bounces over and he's got Linda on his arm and blah 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 and then 10 minutes later he's <laughs> is you know that moment that everyone is talking where his eyes are filling up with tears and he's looking off into the distance and just not saying anything and yeah you know he's 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 a, he's a bit of a roller coaster yeah he roller coaster for sure. He roller coaster. <laughs> okay, Anonymous asked, is it possible for Victor Spinetti to have delivered messages from Paul to John in early 1970 before Paul's divorce announcement? Or do you think it was more likely that it was late 1970 and early 1971, i.e. how do you sleep period? So just FYI, this is in reference to an interview with Victor Spinetti that was sent to us by a listener here let's read mm. it actually so this was like to promote the the blu-ray of help so it's a cute little interview and at the end the interviewer says a meeting Paul next week any messages you'd like me to give him and Victor says well I used to take messages to John from Paul when they weren't speaking but please give him my love and tell him that I'm still alive. I wrote to him after the business of the divorce from Heather Mills, and I got a sweet letter back. Of course, I don't say here I am, but certainly say that I said hello. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> just very <laughs> funny. He's like, "You have my number, Paul." <laughs> um, obviously, Victor Spinetti does not indicate when this was this period when they weren't talking. I definitely don't think it was early 1970. Um, just because that doesn't fit with anything we know about that time including everything john has said afterwards right um i do think it's probably more likely that it was late 70 or early 71 but honestly reading that quote it could mean when they had a tiff during the filming of of hell oh. <laughs> it could just mean i played go between when they were having a fight Oh my gosh, I hope that that's, that that's it. I do kind of do too, because that's kind of the cutest option. Right. Because he doesn't say, he, you know, nest notes or, or letters or anything. He just says messages. Mm. Yeah, I, I'll say sorry <laughs> if he says sorry Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. That is fucking hilarious why would that be a thing that happened more than once unless john and victor were hanging out a lot in 70 71 yeah i don't know i mean i've no reason to disbelieve it like it could mm -hmm. be but i yeah well and also yeah. why is he he's hanging out with both paul and john in 70 in 71 yeah. i don't know yeah could be could be yeah 
yeah, or maybe it was just when they weren't when they weren't speaking. <laughs> How long were you guys on set to get the whole movie yeah. was shot in like three weeks? How yeah. big of a fight could you guys have had? <laughs> and by the way, this is the same period where you guys are all jerking off together. <laughs> was it before or after the jerk off <laughs> that they had their fight? Tell him I'll say sorry if he comes and jerks off with us tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry I said that about yesterday. She would get over it. <laughs> okay, Anonymous asked, so you don't think Paul's solo work is as good as the Beatles? Sad face. Not even Ram? <laughs> Be not alarmed, Anon. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what we meant. We just meant that in terms of sort of global influence and critical recognition and cultural staying power paul will always be better known for his beetle work right and he's aware of that yeah he's aware of that he's always been aware of that it's mm -hmm. not his favorite fact about himself but to his credit he acknowledges it openly and will sometimes talk about it in pretty great depth and i again john and george never did that they never took that question so i i give paul full credit for that yeah i think that's very impressive i mean it, you know john on the other hand went way over to the other side um mm -hmm. to the yeah. point where people don't take it seriously you know like he insisted that his solo work was better than the beatles that it meant more that it was more important and I'm sure there's some people believe that, but most people don't. Right. And we're not saying that you should or shouldn't think. You can think anything you want. So if you believe yeah. that, that's perfectly valid and fine. But yeah, or if his people... solo work is is if his solo work is really important to you personally, then that's that's a wonderful that's the wonderful thing about art. Exactly. So likewise, like I would take Paul's solo catalog on a desert island over the Beatles. That's me personally. I would. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean that I'm not cognizant of the fact that he is better known and better respected mm -hmm. for his Beatles work. That's just true. Yeah. And Paul knows that as well. Mm -hmm. The difference, what we're saying is that Paul at some point realized that and didn't fight it. Yeah. You know, John fought it aggressively. John basically said, you're stupid if you like the Beatles better than you like my solo work, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, he basically did say that. I mean, George kind of did too. Not in so many words. Yeah, but they're like, you're, his attitude. you're an asshole. You need to get over the 60s if you love the Beatles so much. Why don't you fucking marry him? Yeah. And Paul, meanwhile, <laughs> is like, I do love the Beatles, so I get you, fans. Right? I know what you're talking about. They're awesome. How mm -hmm. am I going to top the Beatles? Of course, you're right. However, I'm still going to do my solo work. I hope you give it a listen, but if you don't, you can always fuck off, and that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now we're definitely big fans of Paul's solo work here. Yeah, don't worry about that. There, and I didn't mean to laugh because it was ridiculous. I laughed just because it's funny because we are very rarely accused of not yeah! liking Paul, <laughs> <laughs> of not liking him enough. Yeah, that was a that was a, a new one. Anonymous asked. Huge, enormous, longtime fan of the podcast. My love of this podcast is neither flaccid nor impotent, lol. <laughs> I just listened to Genius Composer Pop Lightweight, and I had so many thoughts. I just had to come and comment, which I suppose is the mark of a good podcast, filling you with intense musings and firing you up. 
and I apologize if it's a bit heavy. While I was incredibly in line with Daphne and Phoebe's perspectives, I struggled with Allison's support of rockism and rock criticism during the 60s and 70s. This is not at all a personal attack on Allison, who was articulate and obviously incredibly knowledgeable and wanting to approach the subject from an academic perspective. But I have often felt that rock criticism has just been another arm on the enormous monster of continued masculine abuse directed toward women, queer people, and people of color. If there's one consistent aspect in Paul's music, other than his incredible talent, it's his prolific empathy for marginalization as a recurring theme in his art. It's not a coincidence that he was in turn so prolifically targeted. Additionally, I feel no empathy for these toxic machismo rock writers or their flaccid ideologies. <laughs> the idea that they're fighting to preserve what's theirs is a fallacy because it was never theirs. They stole rock from women and people of color. I felt like both Phoebe and Daphne tried to direct the conversation toward the toxic patriarchal aspects of rock criticism though i could be misreading the room but it seemed the guest was resistant i confess that i haven't yet read allison's work and i definitely will but i did walk away from the episode unsatisfied considering my own past history with abuse something that paul's music has helped me to process this is not the fault of this amazing podcast the wonderful hosts or the lovely allison i just feel that there's a raw bleeding layer to this that needs to finally be cauterized in the common narrative for good. And I guess I hoped for more. I don't know if what I'm writing is constructive criticism because I don't think that the episode was deficient or that Allison was wrong in any way. I guess I'm just purging my own thoughts and hoping to spawn additional conversation about rock criticism and what it really says about toxic masculinity, the boomer generation, and how the abuse of otherness by older generations continues to impact the younger. <clears throat> All right, well, thank you for that excellent feedback, Anon. We really appreciate your kind words about the podcast, and we appreciate your thoughts on the toxicity of rockism and other forms of masculine gatekeeping within music and fandom in general. And to respond directly to your mail, We've brought on a special guest, Dr. Allison Bumstead. Yay! <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me back for this yes. very, very special special reason, too. We've gotten a lot of great feedback about your episode. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, it was all three of us, so that was that was really exciting. All right, so Allison, um, would you like to respond to this particular listener feedback? Yeah. Uh, thanks for the feedback. Uh, I, you know. We are products of, you know, what we're reading and, and what is all around us, whether we like it or not sometimes. And when I began the research for this, 2013, 2012, maybe, one of the things that I will say is, is when I started writing the piece, um, I was in my mind, you know, defending Paul, but standing at that academic boundary, right? Yeah. But, mm -hmm. I also have mentioned before is that, you know, 
I loved rock and roll growing up as a teenager. And I, I've admitted this in, in my PhD thesis that I'm trying to turn into a book at this point, um, that like Norma Coates, she also admits this, is that, you know, you, you become a product of, of what you love. And I bought into it like, without realizing it, but it was more of a defense mechanism early on, mm -hmm. you know, because I was constantly defending my love of rock and knowledge of popular music and all of that from being called a hair twirler to that. And so there probably is an element where I, I come from that perspective. Now, however, my whole PhD thesis is about women and what they did first, um, especially with the teen fan magazines. I have a whole chapter tearing down the toxic gatekeeping. I don't disagree with that comment uh, at all that, that there, there is a lot of that in there. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's denying it, but where the critics were coming from is that the genre of rock was being denied any, any accolades through the jazz world. The jazz world was just, you know, belittling popular music as well as others and whatnot. And, and one of the things I say in, in the research is that the critics in turn did exactly what they were uh, fighting against. You know, it was a direct response to, to being left out in the, in the jazz world. So in that case, yeah, I, I would say that maybe there is a small element of that, but however, the uh, writer mentions, you know, the academic part. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming from an academic standpoint where I do find value in some of the writings because they help us understand why things are the way they are. Um, mm -hmm. So as a historical document, some of the writers are interesting. I think I mentioned Lester Bangs a few times because um, he's not just a critic, he's a fan. And so it's interesting to see a fan in that role, which all of them you could argue are fans, but his was more on his sleeve. Um, he emblazoned that on his sleeve for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that before maybe there is a, a book or a chapter written that sort of critically dissects all of these writings in a more casual or non-academic way and in, in a more colloquial way the academic portion of it has to be completed right so meaning like you have to have a good cataloging mm -hmm. of all these things to begin with before yeah sort of an impartial yes collating yeah yeah and and i did so I, like i said i like to address the fact that that I don't feel like my writing has the support of it, but I think because I don't completely condemn it, I maybe come across as condoning it when I like I laughed at some of the Zeppelin review you read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that was out of disgust. It wasn't that I found it, um, you know, brilliant. It's just that I think when you really immerse yourself in something, uh, you get used to it and you don't flinch as much. Yeah. Of course. And, yeah. Yeah, and I'm so used to reading all of it, and I'm sure I've read some comments on your show, and the, the toxic masculinity that comes with those comments, you shake it off and you keep moving forward and take whatever value you can out of it. And Exactly. If you, yeah. if you think of it as sort of a given, you know, if you've absorbed it to the point where you're like, well, of course, the baseline course. is going to be a little bit on, <laughs> on the yeah. sexist side. I kind of was taken aback by the comment because in my mind, I'm crusading against it. Yeah. And, and our conversation was bringing that topic up and we were examining it. And 
you know, my piece is one of the first to, to do that in the sense. So, and that's why we had that conversation. So I thought it was inspiring these more positive conversations, but I deal with a lot of, especially in popular music, uh, male academics, I'm not well known. <laughs> and mm. so maybe, maybe I, I, you know, subconsciously think about these things by the way I respond, because I am trying to sound less opinionated and more on the fence. And, you know, maybe that's not always the way I should go. So I, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to think about it. Well, and if you, you don't, if you have a certain audience in mind, you don't want to do the things that you mm-hmm. know will put them on the defensive right away. Yeah. You know, so because you want to, you know, get in there mm-hmm. and hopefully change their mind by yes. persuasion rather than anger. I feel like we're all on the same page and working toward the same things. We just use different tools. Yeah, I agree we, with that. We and yeah, we yeah. have different roles. I mean, that, yes. you know, our our podcast is an <laughs> agitator podcast. Yes, for yes. sure. We, like, we use swearing and dick jokes. <laughs> yeah, and we can be kind of aggressive about things that we find intolerable, you know. And sure. for the most part, that's why people tune into us. For me, I always feel like, well, that's kind of just my role. Like I'm not pissed off all the time. I would like to just sit around and have fun and whatever but um i play a certain role in this little niche thing that i do other people have different yeah. roles to play and i'm not an academic you know i can't do what you do and right. if i did i'd have to take a much different tone <laughs> that, and that is true i mean i i knew when when you guys reached out, I, I did think about that. I was like, well, how would this be perceived if I was being hired at a university and they heard it? And I was like, you know, I think it'd be fine. I think it'd be fine because they're, li- they're going to listen to how I react. Right. And exactly. so, yeah. So if we're having a conversation on the porch with a, a glass of wine in my hand, yes. uh, yeah, I'll tell you who my favorite beetle <laughs> is. And I'll tell you what I think about the guy who called me a hair twirler. And I'll never forget that. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I think about the other toxic masculine attitude I, ex- you know, experienced today. I, I get it. I totally get it. And I, and I, and I feel where this person is, is coming from, uh, just based on the comments made. So I, I really do respect that opinion and that thought. And they're so nice. They, honestly, I thought they were pretty academic about it themselves. Yeah, for sure. That's well, true. Yeah. Well, we, have a lot of, we have a lot of really thoughtful, well-worded <laughs> feedback from our from our tumblr listeners yeah i think that's i think it was a great comment and like i said i'm gonna just kind of reflect on that i i love comments that make me think and so that was really nice and i loved how polite they were (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah but i also i also kind of feel i feel what they're saying about the they're not really sure about it they're like yeah it was good but something left me off and it's it's i I'm not the only, I'm not the last word on this. There's more coming, you know, and there's more research to do. This was just a a start. This was a start. Thanks a lot, Allison, for joining us. Oh yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you listeners and commenters for the awesome and interesting comments. I actually had a lot of fun doing that. It was so much better than trying to break my brain thinking of words to write but thank you for listening we have a lot of great stuff coming up please make sure you stay subscribed to another kind of mind on spotify or good 
Pods or Twisbit or Napple Doodle or whatever the <laughs> fuck you listen to your podcasts on. I don't know. Hello. I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm so sorry. I'm thinking you're an hour. Uh, wait, you are. Wait, what time is it? It's 4.30. I'm, no. I'm an hour ahead of you. Oh my god. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I can do it now. I'm here. I'm here. I'm so sorry. I'm I've never done this before. That's okay. Are you guys still both available? Yeah, yeah, we're we're on Zoom right now, so. No worries. (laughs) Just hung up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most absurd thing I've ever (laughs) seen. But it's a really cute image. Tell me what the avocado was. Okay, yeah. What, what I'm, what I, I need mean to is know. He, as long as he goes on TV <laughs> in the avocado costume, right? Right. It doesn't matter what he says about avocados. I he see. Can, he can go on and you say, some people like avocados, some people don't like them. Sometimes they kill people. Sometimes, you know, they're not as good as pineapple. And if people are watching him on TV, go, what the fuck is this guy talking about? What what is he saying about avocado? Why is he talking? Why are we listening to him? It doesn't matter because he's on TV in an avocado suit. So he's gonna be (laughs) forever gonna be the avocado guy in your mind. Oh, look at this horrible little chubby blonde baby. This little angel. What a dick piece of shit. (laughs) Kiss it better, daddy. Well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you'd give up so easily. It's not your dream, after all. Why should it be, Mr. Big Shot Radio Host? (laughs) Oh, is that what this uh, this little tantrum is all about, huh? You're jealous of my celebrity? It's not a tantrum, and I'm not jealous. I'm just fed up! (laughs) Are you recording? Yep.